This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business. Hi, I'm Melissa Gonzalez. I am the CEO of the Lioness Group and also a principal and shareholder in MG2. What I love about creating consumer-centric experiences is that the consumer is always evolving. And it is our job to be at the forefront of understanding that and that innovation. And to me, that's the ongoing opportunity. From New York City, you're listening to Fashion Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the fashion industry. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Mark Rako, and uh, with us all is Mr. Pubbin Ball of Bellwether Culture. Hey, Pubbin. Good morning. Hey, what's going on, Mark? How are you? Good. I said good morning. Nobody, you may not be listening to this in the morning, but for us, this is this is bright and early in the morning, and uh, what a great way to start it. And uh, with us, of course, Melissa Gonzalez. Um, Melissa, welcome back to the show, and it's been a while since we talked to you. So much has happened with you and your company. Uh, looking forward to not just hearing about that, but a lot has happened to us all and how you fit into that and how you've helped a lot of companies make the best of it and perhaps even carve out new opportunities. It's really a great opportunity itself to, to talk with you about that. So welcome back. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, to say things have changed is definitely an understatement. <laughs> uh, I, I would like to lead it off uh, just with this quick question. Um, uh, as we record this, obviously, we're still in the throes of uh, this horrific pandemic. Uh, but um, how how have you, from a personal basis, as well as a business leader, balanced the fact that, you know, this has impacted your life on a personal basis and made certain challenges with your business, but at the same time, balancing that with where it has carved out new opportunities and even trying to sort of psychologically balance those two poles where there's horrible stuff and there's sort of good stuff at the same time and and uh, and where it may even have woken up some brands and forced them to take on new ways of thinking about experiences, which then opens new doors up for them. I guess that's two yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, look, I think being an entrepreneur, um, you kind of, you kind of have to have that DNA of, of being adaptive and being nimble and being agile. And so, you know, I think in that aspect, that ability has enabled us to, you know, weather the storm a bit. And also it's become something that, you know, brands and retailers that we wouldn't have otherwise worked with have been kind of attracted to. And it has created new inbound because they might be seen as more traditional brands and retailers, but they're recognizing that they probably need to think different now. It's not a question, it's a must. And so they want to work with organizations that they know are kind of built on that agility, um, the mindset of modularity and flexibility. And so, you know, although what we're most known for is pop-up, um, what that signifies is much more than that because it is about having those flexible environments. And understanding that you'll, you, you know, you might need to modulate throughout the year. Um, and so how do we infuse some of that thinking into more permanent retail? So that's been exciting. And definitely, um, I think the silver lining is there's, they're just, there's, they're being forced to adopt uh, new ways of thinking and things that have might've been on the roadmap four years from now are getting escalated to being on the roadmap tomorrow. 
um, and into 2021. And you know, you can't, you can only, you you know, that saying like you'd only try to fit a square into a hole for so long. Like you need to just do something different at some point. So that's definitely, I think, for us, been a silver lining in this terrible time and just the new sorts of clients we've been able to work with. On a on a personal level, you know, you're trying to do that as well too, right? You're you're trying to say like, how do I how do I keep things fun and engaging and stuff at home, and you know, how do I keep my team inspired, and how do I compensate for that lack of human connection and that we're not seeing each other in physical space? So it's kind of in a lot of ways, I'm always thinking about how how are we adapting and how are we you know keeping us moving forward in a positive direction as much as possible. You know, uh, Melissa, you brushed on it a little bit, um, mentioning that you're known for pop-ups. Um, just to explain that out a little bit more, um, can you talk about what the Lioness is all about? The Lioness sure. Group, sorry. Yeah, so the Lioness Group, we are strategists, uh, designers, project managers, um, and most known as pop-up architects. In January, we did officially merge with MG2, which is a global architecture firm. So it's really expanded our resources, our expertise. We now have a nationwide network of licensed architects. The way the Lioness Group used architects was more as a trademark because we were architecting an experience. Um, but now we can say we also are licensed architects. Um, so, you know, we're really just sitting at the heart of building human connection in physical space. And so the duration will vary. Sometimes it might be a pop-up. It, it could be permanent. You know, we can re- take you all the way through rollout. Um, and so I think that's the best way to describe it is we are building human connection and physical space. You know, this is, um, it's unique. First of all, you, you mentioned that the merger with MG2, which happens to be one of the largest architecture firms uh, in the country, um, they, that happened in January, just before kind of the pandemic really hit full force, uh, you know, kind of forcing us into a quarantine, at least on the East Coast in March. Um, the timing of that, when you reflect on that, do you think that still would have happened uh, given uh, kind of the impending pandemic? Um, I mean, I think that it would have probably been on pause if we hadn't already mm-hmm. signed. Um, I don't think it's because of a question of the synergies, those are obvious, right? And we, that's reinforced on a daily basis as we navigate through this new world. But, um, but yeah, I think there's probably going to deal hesitation in general, right? Because you're trying to understand your own financials and where things are shifting and where you have to pivot. Um, but it, I mean, it's definitely been really um, crazy timing, you know, that, that it happened that way, but it's been really good because, there's things that we can bring to each other that are really valuable right now, right? Um, and we've had very different client bases. MG2's biggest client is Costco, for example, which they've been at the forefront of doors open this whole time, right? So that's that's been a business that's been doing well, but there's learnings from that too, right? And so, so yeah, it's been really interesting. We reflect on it as a leadership team all the time. <laughs> And we're, you know, we're thinking, okay, how are these giving us these opportunities then to service our clients differently because we're bringing in different lenses of expertise to the table? You know, for for those folks that are building uh, a company, so I know that you've been, uh, at least personally, I know uh, the, the first time that I had featured you at an open source fashion event was probably in 2010. Um, at Wix Lounge. Was, at Wix Lounge, at a free co-working <laughs> space uh, off of Union Square in Manhattan. And um, 
you know, at the time I called on you because it was, uh, I think the topic of that panel was on uh, non-traditional ways to sell and pop-ups were this new thing. So anyway, I'm setting that stage up to really give the, the you know, the justification. You've been around this for a while. You've been thinking about pop-ups and at the forefront of that model. In, in fact, that you probably pushed that model uh, to existence. And, um, you know, the company, uh, your company, was how big when, um, or at what size uh, when you, uh, in January? We were at 14. Okay, so as a company of 14, that's of course growing well, that has really good foundational um, strength. When you start thinking about, okay, you know what, alignment with uh, an architecture firm makes complete sense, and then getting that to execution, what goes into that process? Well, you know, um, the conversation really started at Shop Talk. So think about that. We officially signed the papers in November, but the deal officially closed in January. But you take so from March to November. So it's a decent Okay, so, so shop, shop Talk of 2019. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Shop Talk 2019, um, I was at a dinner with MMG Advisors, and I sat with Anthony Cho, who's a VC, and he's like, you know, you really should talk to – MG2. I think there's some good synergies. He didn't even realize that. But in the first call, I was asked, are you open to M&A? In the first call. So I was like, oh, okay. That's, you know, I thought we would talk about how we do some projects together, but okay, let's, let's yeah. do, let's have this conversation. Um, so I wasn't shopping for it. I had been approached a few times by others and it really didn't make sense. There was there was there was no organic synergies and others that had approached us um, through, throughout that past, I would say over a 12 month period. Um, it was more people who just were interested in getting involved in what we do, but had no no expertise, no experience. Um, and but they were interesting because, you know, we we had so much experience with D2Cs, for example, helping them go into physical retail for the first time, the real, real, we did all of their pop-ups, Madison Reed, we did their first pop-up at permanent, we, you know, and, but we weren't keeping those relationships as they went to roll out because we were an mm. architecture firm. And on the flip side, uh, the architecture firm weren't getting those early relationships because usually you would go to an architecture firm of their size later on um, in your, your company's trajectory um, and so it was allowing us to kind of bring both ends of those conversations together and saying, we really could be your full service partner. Why learn all of these things with us and then go find somebody new to do your rollout. You could get all those synergies from being with the same firm the whole time. So that was one of those examples. But I would say we spent a good three months of it, maybe even four, just focusing on culture. We didn't even get into the financial conversation till summer, till probably August was when we started really putting numbers down because to me and to the CEO of MG2, the culture alignment was critical um, because we're both people first organizations um, and we wanted to make sure that that was also going to be synergistic. And we kept being able to check the box and reconfirm that that was the case. And then we felt confident to dive deeper into the financials. You know, that's fascinating to me. First of all, we've had a conversation at, at that same shop talk about, uh, let's say, your frustration with um, holding on to the clients through the fact that they start scaling and growing to a point where they're investing in their physical retail spaces around the, the country and around the world. And you did cite the real real, right? The, I think it was their Vegas um, pop up mm -hmm. at the time uh, mm -hmm. that kind of kicked everything off. But wow, that's this is fascinating that you're talking about culture 
before even numbers come into the conversation. Now I'm wondering, is there even an expectation around the numbers at this point? Or you're fully talking as, hey, we could be potential, you know, partners, coworkers, um, you know, merging the two teams and, and let's see if there's a potential there uh, before even talking about numbers. Or is there an expectation in terms of, okay, well, some sort of uh, compass that you're working on uh, to, to understand that these conversations are even worthwhile on culture? I- I mean, we we definitely shared in broad strokes, you know, roughly what we were doing in revenues, roughly, you know, what our average client was paying us. They were very transparent and shared all their numbers with us as well. So we knew exactly, you know, it's a marriage, right? So mm-hmm. we, we needed to know too, like, you know, what is the composition of your revenues? What are your risks? Um, what do you think your growth opportunities are? How do we fit into that? So we definitely had those conversations, but we didn't. I don't think we actually like shared the books until we were further along in the confidence of the cultural conversation. Um, and then they, de- they didn't make an offer on the number until I believe we were in August. So, um, you know, there was definitely confidence that we thought it would be a number worthwhile for sure, but you know, we didn't really, really know. Um, but you know it's in when you when you have an organization like that that cares so much about the cultural aspect it it sometimes numbers won't matter because you you'll end up in a miserable experience so you know right you have to make sure that um like when you start a business it's your baby and you really have to understand like what your role will become you know you underestimate but i really learned this when we announced the deal to our team when a team joins a smaller organization that's very entrepreneurial, you can't underestimate how much that means to them. What their paycheck is matters, but the biggest questions our team had were about culture when we announced it to them. And are we still going to be the line S group? And are we still working for you? Are you still going to be around? And it was very powerful. I didn't even expect it to be so strong. Our CEO was like, wow, for such a young company. I mean, they've been around 45, 50, like, so they were much right, more established. He couldn't believe how they were vocal to him. And, you know, we sat one by one with them in the room and they looked him in the eye and said those things, you know? And so I'm glad we did the homework because it wasn't just going to be impactful to me, but it was going to be impactful to all the the, uh, team members I had that joined the company because they believed in me right? Not just for the work. Melissa, that is such an important aspect, I think, not just in acquisitions or mergers, but just in the growth of a company in general. And when you bring on even new um, high-level team members, you know, as you expand your executive team, even how that can, you know, have implications in changing company culture as they bring in a new ingredient uh, that that many companies have to think about as they grow. I'm I'm also interested just, just, you know, with you at at point on a lot of this, uh, and as a founder from the beginning, and this being a vision, you know, what is this like for you in no longer having sort of a one hundred percent grasp on the reins yourself, and being willing to say there is a risk to me giving someone else also hanging on to these reins with me, and you know it. It has such great opportunity. I'm going in, see the potential, and I trust these people. But there is a risk that goes in that this can all 
not turn out the way that you hope. Because, you know, a lot of acquisitions, not this one, but a lot of acquisitions, you know, end up seeing rosy at first. And once they're in it, they go, aha, we've got you now and everything changes. So how did you approach that? And, and how have you felt about that in terms of, has the dynamic changed for you in terms of your, of your ability to make the decisions that you know are right because you're bringing that experience? Yeah, it's definitely a balancing act. You know, you can at some point you take a leap of faith when you do the deal. You ideally have great lawyers and you know, you try to make sure you think through the scenarios and you know, you you try to factor in the things that protect your ability to continue to ha have an influence. So, you know, keeping your brand name, keeping your title, um, keeping, you know, do you have, um, do you have authority to hire, fire? Do you have authority to, what is your impact on, you know, your organization's budget and um, decisions you make around that? You know, I'm also a shareholder in the larger organization. So I stay part of the leadership team beyond just the brand of the Lioness group, right? So, you know, you, you need to make sure that you're making those negotiations, um, but at the end of the day, you know, you have to feel good enough. And I could say every time I had a conversation with Mitch, I always left the call feeling really confident and good that there was so much alignment and, and, and mindset and belief. Um, but recognizing he's going to become my boss um, and respecting through my conversations that I, I, could, I could see all the things I could learn from him too, right? Um, so, you know, you have to, it's a gut thing at some point, even though you have to do the homework from the legal aspect, cause it's just how it is. But I will say like, nothing will test that more than a pandemic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so no matter what we put in writing, we also have to like, we kind of got to go with it a little too these days because, you know, we set benchmarks, right. And you set goals and you set all these things and then like this happens and you just have to adapt and evolve with it. Um, you know, and you have to, you can't, you have to, for me, I have to trust the deal happened for a reason and he wants to unlock the synergies of the deal just as much as I do. I mean, he paid yeah. for it, you know, like exactly. I have, I have benchmarks and milestones, but like, right. So, um, so I have a balance and we do our quarterly check-ins, you know, and then there's a balance and I, and I always ask like, you know, I don't, I don't you have to pick your battles sometimes, right? In life and anything. So there's the times where I'm like, okay, this is something I probably just need to adapt to. And then there's other times I say, you know, this is something I probably have to address. And it, it's, it's, there's no perfect science to that. Um, but if your compass is like, what's for the betterment of the entire organization? And if it is, I need to say something, then, you know, you find your points to do that. Hi. This is Mark Rako. I'd like you to join me in supporting an extraordinary mission to make arts education real for underserved kids nationwide and help keep the creative connection alive. An amazing nonprofit called AHA Broadway was created to bring arts education programming through musical theater and specially developed workshops to kids throughout New York who aren't provided the services they deserve. And frankly, the pandemic isn't the only challenge to this programming. Every year, more of the arts are cut from our schools. It's extremely important that children have these creative outlets and collaborative development. Look, arts are not a luxury. From the time that kids develop motor skills, they rely on the arts to learn how to communicate. 
Arts are a great collaborative experience and they teach us how to critically think and empathize and understand the human condition. So Mouth Media is proud to partner with AHA Broadway and support their efforts to help bring these vital services back to schools. With every dollar AHA Broadway raises, they will directly serve the kids of New York and beyond. They'll be able to reach even more students remotely through their innovative virtual teaching. So I am asking for your help to help them meaningfully serve 1,000 kids with access to programming and technology, starting with a $10,000 crowdfunding by giving anything you can. Please visit ahabroadway.org slash 1,000 kids. Again, that's ahabroadway.org slash 1,000 kids. And please contribute anything you can to their crowdfunding effort. Thank you so much for supporting today's kids and tomorrow's adults. Yeah, Mel, first of all, uh, congratulations. Um, you know, I think uh, 2020 has been a very difficult um, time for, for most folks and in business. Uh, there's been a lot of uncertainty and it's been great to, to watch you, especially as a close friend, um, just kind of prevail and, and proceed uh, as you have been. I do want to make a quick comment before we shift gears into, you know, the future or the current and future um, footprint and, and use cases of physical retail is that I look at this as a community builder, as as a really great case study of how community um, just lines up the stars and brings uh, opportunity. Um, you know, you mentioned that uh, you went to uh, MMG Advisor, so you know we're of course friendly with Matt. We've had Matt Cated on the on the show a couple times, and then also Anthony Cho. I believe he's uh, he invests in DTC brands uh, mm-hmm. out in LA. So Marine Layer being one of the more mm-hmm. um, uh, notable ones, but uh, an incredible investor and an incredible eye. Um, but this just kind of, and again, this is a, this is something at Shop Talk. It's, I love hearing this because I just feel that this is one of those instances where my dad would be like, you know, you know, the luck finds those that are working hard and that put themselves out there. And, you know, you kind of bring those lucky or those uh, opportunistic uh, moments to you. And um, just by being so vocal, by sharing your education regularly on whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn or, you know, uh, your various different outlets that you report through, um, I think uh, I've seen you on anything from, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but like Forbes mm-hmm. and Business Insider, I've seen you on Cheddar, I've seen you on CNBC, I've seen you at the stock market, um, <laughs> you know, like there's, a, you know what I mean? Like you really get out there and you're the face of your company and those instances all um, compound into this moment. Um, and, uh, you know, um, it has nothing to do with readiness, preparedness, thought leadership, I I mean, um, you know, ability to execute. Those are foundationally there with you. Um, what you've done to, to, to gain this opportunity for, for you and your team is, is really, um, just being persistent, vocal and educating others. So, uh, congratulations to you. Uh, really, really uh, excited to hear that, that, yeah, you know, all those things unfolded uh, the way it did. Thank you. No, I really appreciate that. I'll say 
when I first started, I, I was knee deep in pop-up from the beginning. And I remember saying to somebody who was interning for me at the time, but she was a little older, but interning nevertheless with me. And um, I said, how come these people are getting hired? Like, why aren't they calling us? And she's like, well, if you want to be known as an expert, you got to write a book. And so I was like, well, then I'm going to write a book. And then that became, you know, that really stuck with me because people don't know what's in your head if you don't put it out in the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the pop-up paradigm was uh, was released how long ago now? Maybe four years back. Uh now it's five. Yeah, uh, twenty. Yeah, twenty fifteen, and then second edition twenty sixteen. Yeah. Now I forget the gentleman's name, but he did the book in the box, right? Um, <laughs> Tucker he, Max. He, Tucker Max. You were his first book. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. So to switch gears now, um. Let's let's get to it a little bit. Uh, retail, you mentioned, has changed uh, tremendously. Uh, you know, because uh, the uh, the alignment with MG two, you've also had a very unique per, uh, lens on large box or big box retail, such as the Costco's of this world. Um, what are the, some of the areas that you've seen uh, retailers really be able to leverage to dig out of this kind of uncertainty? Yeah, I mean. It's interesting because in the beginning of the year, you had so much conversation that there's very few big box retailers left and they used to be competitive and they, they're becoming more friendly because they realized that the world was shifting away from them. And then we saw that completely change in 2020, right? Um, and, you know, we've actually been starting some of our own primary research uh, initiatives and the latest survey that came back was, you know, Specialty retail is the least that people are going to, and you know, big box are, are, are the most. Um, so it's really it's really interesting um, in that aspect how much things has changed. But I would say those that are able to um, really lean into flexible fulfillment, you know, that's been a, a huge thing, um, and a lot of it just being driven by the need to be safe. Um, but really creating those scenarios where customers can be met where they feel comfortable, right? So whether that's e-commerce fulfillment, curbside, buy online, pick up in store, you know, or actually come into the store, whatever it is, creating environments that have the flexibility to service any of those scenarios. Um, those have been best positioned. Um, and then I would say, you know, now it's really leaning into for 2021 and beyond, how do you do those things well? You know, I think consumers were very accepting of the band-aids this year because it was just like, we're in this together and we just got to make it work. And you were okay with the imperfection um, about it, but now you're starting to see, okay, how do we, how do we now elevate what curbside is and meeting customers points of gratification. And so, you know, I think it's the brands that are able to really be mindful of that. Um, for sure. Some of the big guys, they've already were making those technology investments and having partnerships with shift and postmates and all these other things. So, you know, they definitely had those advantages, but I think that on the smaller business side, you know, you've seen great partnerships, like what Shopify is doing for brands right? And how they're helping with fulfillment and stuff. So it's really about those that are kind of tying themselves into the whole ecosystem of it and figuring out how to really connect those online and offline worlds. You know, I'm sure you're fielding this a lot as you were in 2009, 2010, when we first met is that, oh, physical retail's dead, right? So you're hearing those um, those conversations creep up again. And of course, uh, folks like ourselves will say it's, it's probably going to reinvent itself dramatically and it's going to be more exciting than ever or it's going to accelerate into the future what does it look like to you in um in two years three years when we are hopefully fully out of this pandemic and shoppers are back on the streets 
Yeah, I mean, I keep up bringing the Roaring Twenties and Gatsby error. I think, <laughs> I think we're going to have that happen at some point because, you know, as much as we're going to see changed behaviors, people are always going to be human. People are always going to want to be social. People are going to want to be around other people. People are going to, right? So, um, but there, I think, like, you nailed it when you said better. You know, I think that there's going to be much purposeful curation of what happens in a store. I think there's going to be a more purposeful approach of understanding what can we um what can we satisfy online? Um, and there's a lot of transactional aspects. And then what do we bring in store? In store, I think satisfies um, the emotional side of shopping and e-commerce satisfies uh, the transactional side, right? So how do we, how do we bring it? So those two are always complementing each other. Um, and I think, you know, how does a store uh, solve a pain point? for example, that can't be answered online. So we already started to see it a lot in footwear, but it's about fit when it comes to shoes, for example, right? So your approach to creating a store might not be how much inventory can I fit per square foot? It's how much experience can I bring per square foot? And how do I help somebody find that perfect fit so that they have the confidence, right? Uh, I know my, I'm like, is it wide or am I foot nat wide or narrow? Do I like a small heel, two inch, three inch, four inch, like answering those questions and then feeling the confidence to continue to shop with that brand online or offline because they had that in-person experience. You know, we found, uh, look, there's a huge wave in direct-to-consumer digitally native brands uh, investing in physical space, right? Because they realize that there's only a plateau that they could get to on online, right? So they have to engage and encourage and, and initiate the relationship in real life. Um, you know, we're, we're getting into a point or we're going to be a, at a point where uh, inventory on the commercial side, unfortunately, and fortunately, is going to be uh, very much available. Um, and you're going to find and, you know, this blend of acceleration of digital over the last, uh, say, eight, nine months, going up to 50, 60 percent e-commerce sales versus overall revenue. Of course, that's going to normalize a bit, but it's not going to go back down to 11%, not with users' behaviors shifting so much. So what happens now is that direct-to-consumer accelerate or brands or digitally native brands are going to really invest in real-life experiences. Um, you know, Bonobos, of course, with their kind of fit shops, right, that they started without any intent on, intent on selling anything physically, it was, it was all about getting uh, to your point is the experience and the fit so that they they can accelerate ecom <laughs> i mean how do you see now you know we've been talking now about unified commerce over the last 2 years have been the big buzzword 2 3 years um from omnichannel right different silos versus now a unified um kind of experience where what does unified commerce look and feel like to you you know i think we've had a conversation a lot of conversations it's not omnichannel it's customer channel so i think that it is it still has a long way to go because I think it's really about personalization too. Um, because each, as I think of the three of us, like each of our paths to purchase is going to vary, but it's unified commerce is really just being able to, to meet us where we need to be met regardless of the touch point. Like I don't even call it a channel. It's more of a touch point. Cause I don't, you don't think of it as a channel. You think of it as a brand. So how do I need to engage with that brand and it being as fluid and as consistent as possible I mean, some of the challenges I've seen more and more in COVID is like, there's so much, um, there's, there's so much uh, missing in the in-store experience as far as inventory, for example, like I get catalogs from West Elm and I'm seduced and then there's one in Hoboken. So I'm like, oh, I'll just run to the store, you know, because I don't want to 
I don't want to wait or I don't want to pay for shipping. I don't want it to spend X amount of dollars to get free shipping. Um, and then I go to the store and then any of the things I need and I'm told, oh, well, you're going to have to order those things online. So that's a very inconsistent, non-unified experience for me, right? And and I have to pay for them to ship it to me because they don't have it in store. So, you know, it's, it's rethinking of that holistically, right? If you're going to send me a catalog, my experience on the catalog online in store, it all has to be cohesive and unified. Um, and until we get there, then I, I think you're going to, you're going to have those points of disappointment for your customers. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, we've seen the models with, uh, you know, I guess the most, I guess, glaring, uh, vision of experiential for me has been, uh, st- um, sorry, camp for, you know, the children's, uh, yeah. uh retailer yeah. camp and then, um, and then also, uh, show fields. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, bringing in kind of like the slide and all these different multi-brand store within stores. Um, are there new models that you're looking at that you're particularly excited about? Um, I mean, I think the marketplace, um, is interesting and I'm curious to see how more of that mentality will be infused into what the department store is right? Because it's the department store is kind of a marketplace, but the way in which it's executed from somebody like a Showfields versus like a Macy's is so different, right? So I'm really interested to see how that will continue to evolve. I think some of it will be through these smaller format stores that you're starting to see, which is enabling them to be more curated, more specific to the local needs of where that store is located or the way in which a shopper wants to engage in that moment of time. So for example, like Nordstrom, right? And, you know, they're a client of ours. We're doing their local stores. But that local store experience is so different than Rack. It's so different than Full Line. So I think it's interesting, uh, a brand's uh, retailer's ability to analyze the different needs of different markets and really taking that approach of um, having a holistic view of what that physical fo- like physical retail portfolio needs to look like so that they're creating these little networks that support that are complementary and supportive to each other so that you are, you know, you're helping your customers in different ways to, you know, that they need to be um, accommodated for. If you're a young brand that has seen um, some success uh, and accelerated success in 2020 um, and they're looking into uh, whether physical retail is for them or not, how would you, or let's assume that they are leaning towards investing in physical retail. How would you suggest they go about the planning? Um, I mean, I think as you mentioned before, there's definitely real estate opportunities. I would start with the the homework of why, what do we consider success? Um, and you know, those should feed into like what you want the store experience to be. I just, there's so many people who say, I want to go into physical. I want to do a pop-up. I mean, pop-ups definitely like a lower risk way to test physical. So we know that you have a ceiling to how much risk you're taking, you know, the length of the lease, you've hopefully modeled out your expenses and it's pretty much going to be where you're in for, and you know what you could possibly lose. Um, but, but you have to do the homework of, you know, what, what, like, what are my goals here? Is it to test the viability? of this new geography? Am I A-B testing a format? Am I trying to figure out my merchandising strategy? Am I trying to build brand awareness? And like, what are you trying to do? Because it's going to also inform how you um, design the space. Is it, is it, is it going to lean a lot more to being like highly experiential, story-driven, less views on the floor, 
maybe you sell nothing on the floor because it's all about that media impressions or, you know, or you're, you're done the homework of figuring out where are people falling off in the funnel online. And that's what I need to bring into the store. Like I mentioned before with a fit shop for shoes, are you realizing you sell heels and you sell flats and you sell flats, they fly off, you know, those sales are really high online, but you never sell your heels. Maybe that's what the store needs to help answer. So I think, you know, you need to, if you can't really do that homework and figure out some of those answers, then you're probably not ready because you're not going to be doing the homework to help position what this pop-up should be for success. And you really won't have your head around what you should be tracking. Like what is the ROI, right? What are the KPIs? What are you really tracking to see if this is a successful endeavor or not? Melissa, I, I, I think I'd be reticent without bringing this up, you know, uh, since you started Lioness Group, uh, technology has obviously, as it always does, developed and advanced. And I think it presents both immense opportunities for you in terms of the flexibility of what you can design and the experiences that you can present. And also, frankly, some competitive challenges, maybe, uh, in, in, you know, we've seen technology that can create essentially digital pop-up spaces for a back of a, lack of a better way of putting it, sure. where someone can test drive an environment digitally in a, in a really interesting way that seems to get better every month. Um, but at the same time with things like AR and, and, and other amazing technology, you can also do things in, in pop-up spaces and experiential retail that you could never do before. So mm-hmm. can you comment and, you know, also, you know, working hand in hand with an architecture firm as you are now, uh, the opportunity to design spaces that complement that technological availability of, you know, okay, if we're going to do AR, how can we design a physical space that makes the AR work in really interesting ways that, that maybe it wouldn't, if we weren't more purposeful about it. So, you know, having the architects thinking in that direction is really, really cool. So I guess what I'm asking you for is, is can you comment on both where it presents opportunity and how you're thinking about taking on whatever degree of competition digital environments may now present, if at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, technology is a tool. So it's what you do with that tool. And you, you know, you still have to architect an experience around it. Like you said, right. Creating that environment Um, in store, the most successful technology is, you know, you're not changing behavior. You're enhancing existing behavior. It's got to be frictionless and intuitive and it's got to enhance the experience that's already happening. Um, and that's the opportunity when you're able to do that. Um, I think right now, the exciting part is that um, necessity has driven adoption, right? Like there's been so many questions in the past when we work with a brand or retailer, like that's really cool, um, but are consumers going to do it? Are they going to engage with it? Are they going to use it? And so we can check the box on a lot of those things. The answer is yes. People are going to shop with their phone. They are going to use augmented reality. They are going to do live stream. They're going because they've had to, right? And they've had to do it long enough. I mean, we're probably only halfway through this situation that they're not just trying it once or twice. It's it's shaping like their new behaviors and they know it's possible. And I really believe we're going to, you know, we're going to be living in a BYOD world, like bring your own device, right? Like, and that's, and that's kind of like your, your remote control to choose your own adventure and how you interact. So I think that that's the opportunity. I think, yes, there's more going online and that's going to challenge the physical environment more. So 
you know, it's really going back again to that homework of how does it complement? You know, I think that in some aspects, like if I think of beauty, for example, having that, that, that virtual appointment has actually been a lot you've seen a lot more deeper engagement than when, you know, a person went in store because they're having this half hour, Mm -hmm. one-on-one in-depth appointment with a beauty advisor, staring at your face, maybe going through your drawers with you, understanding what makeup you own, figuring out, right? So it's actually gotten pretty intimate, but it still doesn't satisfy me being able to sample it really, right? And understanding the texture and the pigments. And so it's like, it's really understanding how, you position it so those two worlds really complement each other. We shouldn't see them as competitive. You know, one thing that we didn't touch on, which I'm very excited about, and I'm hoping that a lot of physical retailers are going to be um, using some floor space for this, is the ability to leverage um, like studio space. So creating a little bit of a, you know, um, you know, a content studio where you can take advantage of live shopping events, because that model, of course, overseas, uh, especially in Eastern Asia, China, has been just through the roof. And we're seeing that adoption come into the U.S. market. And that becomes super, super exciting is how can you showroom online through your retail stores? And how do you host shopping events and live uh, discussions that drive conversion? Um, So um, something that uh, I'm not sure if you're already having conversations about that, but something in my head that I feel like is a natural progression over the retail space. No, for sure. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with Chop Shops, you know, and then they're in the U.S. now. And um, we've had a lot of those conversations because people are also wondering, you know, when we have limited capacity, how do I extend my reach? Right. And so that's a perfect way you have an influencer come in and, you know, they take you through that in-store experience. They try on outfits. You see how it fits. You could bring in influencers of different sizes, different styles and you really help the audience kind of put it together. And she's seen tremendous um, success and conversions of not only people um, shopping the stream, but shopping together. And it becomes this social event yeah. that people aren't able to have right now. Yeah, it's your Tupperware parties, which is apparently a big thing again. Uh, so, uh, so, <laughs> so says their stock price. Uh, I, no well, question. look, there's a lot of at-home cooking, so we need our Tupperware because, you <laughs> know, it. you got to put the leftovers somewhere. Well, the, their design got slick as shit, though. I, I must say, you. man, Tupperware is back, and it's back bigger and stronger than ever. They're more tough than ever. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, how can people, uh, as if they can't easily find you with a quick Google search, well, let's save them that. How can they connect with you and the amazing things that you're doing? Oh, um, well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn, so Mel's Styles. Um, or the LinkedIn, Melissa Gonzalez, Lioness, because there's a lot of Melissa Gonzalez's. So I would add in the word Lioness um, on that. And, you know, you can always go to our website, uh, lionessgroup.com, and those messages will come to me as well. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Melissa Gonzalez. Uh, what an absolutely uh, amazing journey that we've we've witnessed part of it. Puffin's witnessed more than I have. And uh, <laughs> you're, you're just a, a dynamo. That's probably hasn't even reached her full dynamo capacity yet. So <laughs> it's really great to hear how excited. I can't wait to have you on again in whatever time and go, oh, yeah, this happened. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to that for sure. Well, continue, continued great fortune as you continue to uh, find the, 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 the silver lining opportunities within uh, challenging times. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, it's the, we, we all have to keep our minds open to those white spaces because they exist. 
Um, and that's when that's where uh, innovation happens. So, yeah, keeping our eyes open for those opportunities. All right. Well, thanks again, Melissa. That's it for uh, this great episode of Fashion is Your Business, everybody. We sure do appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. We'll be back again next week, of course. Until then, for Pub and Ball. Shake it easy. I don't know why I use your whole name at the end. We've been with you the whole episode. But uh, with that dude pubbing, uh, I'm Mark Rako. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Fashion Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2020. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at fashionisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening.